Well, it's great to see all of you here today. And if this is your very first time, like this is your first time to ever, ever be here, you're watching online for the very first time, uh, so glad you're here. Um, my name is Joe. I get to be the lead pastor here, and I hope that I get a chance to meet you before you go home today. Uh, but welcome. Glad you're here. Come back again. Uh, we're going to be here next week. Yes, on Christmas, we will be right here doing this, the same thing. And like I told you the other day, we're going to find out the real Christians among us, but who's going to be here? No. I got that's my that's my fallback joke. I say that to everybody, but I probably said it to you already. I forget between services what I've said, what I haven't said. But hey, welcome um, next weekend. Speaking of next weekend, we have uh, seven services to choose from: two on Friday, four on Saturday, and one on Sunday. They're all identical. You pick the best one that fits for your family and your context, and come to any of them. Um, you can come to all of them if you want. Don't know why you'd want to do that, but you can. And uh, but there'll be seven, and it's going to be an amazing weekend next weekend as we get ready for for Christmas. It's going to be awesome. Hey, how'd you like these drums up here? That was kind of cool, wasn't it? That was... That was really cool. That was really cool. Um, you may not know this, but the young man on this side, it's Elijah Moore, and that is John, our worship pastor's son. I don't know if you knew that or not. That's, uh, he's a freshman at BHS. And over here was uh, Tanner Schwartz, the guy playing drum, and he's a sophomore at BHS. And, um, and uh, I have known these boys since they were like this tall. And I've been in ministry long enough to know uh, or to appreciate now some longevity and to see these kids grow up and to serve using their gifts and see how God works with them. And I look around our tech team. You know, a lot of our tech team, you know, the people run around with cameras and stuff and run. Do you know a lot of our teenagers that are in our youth group and this is how they serve? So let me just tell you, it's a joy to me to see all these young people serving in our services. It's really, really awesome. Well, hey, welcome to uh, A New Life, as I was saying, and we are continuing our Cast of Christmas series, and I want to start off by, by saying a few words to you, and they all have something in common, and I want to see if you can figure out what they are, okay? Let me throw these out there. Here's the first one. Mona Lisa. Here's the second one. The Scream. Here's the third one. Impression Sunrise. What do these all have in common? Well, if you said they're all famous paintings, then you are absolutely right. That is what they have in common. They're all famous, famous paintings. In fact, many artists, many people would say that these are treasures. These are treasured pieces of art. They're priceless pieces of art. And you know what else they all have in common? They have something else that's in common as well, besides the fact they're all treasured pieces of art. All three of these famous paintings at one time in their existence have been stolen. That's what they have in common too. They've all been stolen. The Mona Lisa that was painted by uh, da Vinci in the 16th century, that it was stolen in 1911 by one of the workers at the museum who just walked out the door with it because he felt like that this painting should be in Italy. All right, that's, that's why his motivation. Now, he was caught a couple years later trying to sell it. So I guess uh, money was more important than motivation. I guess, I don't know. But it was returned and still on display today. The, the other painting, The Scream, uh, that was painted by Edward Munch, was uh, painted in the early 1900s. It was stolen by a group of armed robbers right off the museum wall in 2004. But fortunately, it was recovered and it was repaired and restored and, and it's available today to see. The Impression Sunrise by Monet that was painted in the late 1800s, it was stolen again, an armed robbery in 1985, and it took five years for the police to find this and, and, um, and bring it back. Why do I mention this? Why, why do I even say this about this artwork? Because there's something about this artwork 
and about Christmas, at least for me, that has something in common. And maybe you feel the same way I do about the Christmas season, that the real masterpiece of Christmas is Jesus. I hope we all agree with that. But at the same time, this masterpiece that is Christmas, which is Jesus, it feels like somebody's always trying to steal him from us. Doesn't it feel that way? It does to me. Seems like somebody wants to steal him, take him away, replace him with something else. I would say Jesus is the treasure of Christmas, but uh, it seems like whoever they are, you ever try to figure out who they are? They say, they, they I, I don't know who they are, but it seems like they always want to take him from us and replace him with something else, replace him with a lot of things that aren't healthy, like stress and pressure and financial debt and all kinds of things. That's why I feel so strongly every Christmas about just pausing and taking a few weeks here just to focus in on the true meaning, the true treasure of Christmas. And that's why I love preaching about the different individuals, the cast of Christmas that had something to do with the, the narrative, the birth narrative of Jesus that we read in the Bible. I just feel strongly as your pastor, that I gotta keep this treasure out in front of you all the time because always it feels like it's trying to be stolen from us. And I don't like that and I don't think you should like it very much either. So this cast of Christmas series, it helps us keep uh, the treasure that is Jesus right out in front of us. So we started, what, first with, with the prophets and we talked about them a little bit, specifically about Micah and the prophecy from Micah 5.2, where he names the, the birthplace of the Savior. And as people in that day were watching and anticipating the arrival of Jesus, we today, the church, need to be watchful and with great anticipation about his second coming. We have something very much in common with the people in the Bible times. We are waiting for Jesus to come again. Then we looked at the angels and they made this great announcement that the Savior had been born. And you might remember they announced peace on earth. Remember? Peace on earth. In fact, Isaiah said that he would be the Prince of Peace, the Savior. What kind of peace are we talking about? Very specifically, the kind of peace that Jesus brought was peace with God and it's available to everybody. Then we looked at the shepherds and uh, they were the ones to first hear the uh, announcement that the Savior had been born. And I just think it's awesome that these shepherds were the ones that received this announcement. Can you imagine? The good shepherd's arrival was announced first to a group of shepherds. What an incredible visual. Now today, we're gonna talk about the, the Magi. The Magi. That's the next cast of Christmas. And if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two is where we're gonna be today. If you're using your app, the, the sermon notes are in there as well. Just tap the sermon notes icon on the front page of your app. All the scriptures I'm gonna to reference today are in there. There's also a place where you can take some notes if you so choose to, and you can even email them to yourself when you're all done. But Matthew chapter two is where we're gonna to be today. And while you're finding that, I wanna reference you back to the picture I showed you last week of the nativity. It'll pop up here behind me here in just a minute. Um, the nativity is the typical picture of, of the manger scene. And over here we have the shepherds. That's who we talked about last week. Well, today we're gonna focus in on the magi. That's these guys over here. And as I told you last week, uh, the nativity is a little bit deceptive in the sense it makes you think that they were there at the manger. The magi were not there at the manger. And you might remember I told you last week you need to throw them away from your nativity. No, don't do that. I'm, I, I'm still joking about that. Don't do that. I'm, I'm, they complete the picture of the nativity, but just for clarity, the Magi weren't there at the birth of Jesus. They came a little bit later, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But the Magi, um, different from the shepherds, but 
extremely important in their presence. And I hope you see that by the time we're done. They're very unlikely visitors of the Savior. Like, like if you were gonna sit down and you were gonna write the story of the coming of the King of Kings, I'm not sure any of us would have thought to include them, but, but we're not the Lord and he's got a much bigger vision than any of us. He includes these guys, but who were they? They're very unlikely visitors. They come from a far off place, but we don't know a whole lot more about them. But let's start to see what we do know. Look at Matthew chapter two, uh, verse one through two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now I've preached on the Magi many times. I don't even know how many times I've talked about the Magi before, but every time I do, I just feel compelled to ask this question. Who are they? Who were the Magi? Because the Bible gives us very few details and uh, we make up the rest of them. Like, like the Christmas song we sing every year. We three kings of Orient. We don't know they're kings. We don't know they're from the Orient. We don't know anything really. We say three. You know why we assume three? You know why your nativity has three? Because they brought three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we thought, well, three gifts. Obviously there were three of them. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. So we do go to the Bible though and discover what it does say. And the, the, it says, Magi, who are these guys? We also don't know any of their names. The Bible doesn't give those to us. And we also really don't know where exactly they are from. Most Bible scholars say they're probably from Persia, which we would know in the Old Testament as Babylon. What we would understand today is modern day Iraq. And there's a lot of reasons for why people assume that's where they are from. And I don't necessarily disagree with that we get a little bit of an impression of what their occupation was or what they, they did based on the name that they are given. Uh, the Greek term for them is magi. And in Greek and Persian societies, magi were persons who were considered endowed with great knowledge. They were people who um, studied the stars. We would say they're probably experts of the day in astronomy. They, could, they studied the stars, and they watched for things in the sky. Others of them were known as uh, having the ability to interpret dreams. Others of them had, uh, they, they practiced magic. There's some mystery around what they did, but what is pretty obvious is that um, what was common in the day is that rulers and kings and politicians, they would have magi around all the time because they would consult with them about political business and decisions for the country. So it was common for them to be rub shoulders with kings and queens and others because their counsel was very valued. Um, in fact, if the magi were still around today, Washington DC would be full of them, all right? They'd be in all the political offices and maybe we should give that a try. Maybe, I don't know, I, I don't know. I don't know. But the Magi, they speak of this rising star, some phenomenon in the sky that they saw. What, what did they see? I don't know, but whatever it was, it caused them to travel to a foreign land in search of a newborn king. What did they see? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Was it a natural phenomenon? Did they see an alignment of planets? Did they see a comet? Did they see a supernova? Did they see a shooting star? What is it that they saw? We don't know. Was it something more miraculous in nature? Was it something that God specifically put there for them to see on that day? I, I don't know. I'm comfortable with either. But this signaled something to them. They connected a dot. That thing that we see caused them to search for something that led them to Jerusalem. 
And so that's why they, they travel there. Um, we're going to learn a little bit later in, in our verses that it's not like they followed this star all the way to Jerusalem. They don't even see this phenomenon in the sky again until after they leave Jerusalem when it leads them to Bethlehem. But no matter what they saw, no matter what it was that they saw that drew their attention, I've always just thought that the Magi were just a group of truth seekers, really. They're just a group of truth seekers. At the end of the day, they're seeking wisdom and truth. And, and, and God, in his infinite wisdom, found a way to connect with these truth seekers and help them connect a dot. They're probably not Jewish. They, they probably just came from afar off because they're seeking something. And God reached out to them and they came. Now for me, there's a very powerful lesson in here that's not too different from what we learned last week. Last week, we learned about the shepherds how they were the very first ones to receive information and invitation to come see the Messiah. And they dropped everything in the fields that night and they rushed to see the Savior. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it's a powerful visual about the coming of the Good Shepherd being announced to a group of shepherds as a strong reminder that Jesus is for everyone. And we talked about how shepherds were not highly valued back in that day. So the fact that shepherds would have access to this king shouts a very loud truth. The Magi being called, connected with, to come and meet the Savior of the world, well, that highlights the exact same truth, only expounds on it even more, that Jesus is indeed for everybody. So the Magi being called to Jesus, most people back in that day, if you were to say everybody, if you were a Jewish person, the, the, everybody means all the Jews. That, that's the assumption. And so when the shepherds, they represent everybody, well, somebody could be short-sighted and say all the Jews. And of course, Jesus came for all the Jews. In fact, Christianity started with the Jewish people first. But the Magi being called in says something even broader than that. That, that the Lord, the coming of this king, he was gonna be the leader. He was gonna be the one of a group much larger than the Jewish nation. That this is gonna extend much further than that. In fact, if you look at the church today, Christianity. Hasn't it spread all around the world? Yes, there's people that's unreached still, but Christianity has gone all the way around the world, different languages, different nationalities, different continents. It really is broader than any one singular group of people. And so you'd look at the, the Magi and the shepherds. They create for us a spectrum, if you will, that represents all people from, from poor to rich, from Jews to Gentiles, to the whole gamut of people. This king is for everybody. And these true seekers, they have one question that they are searching for. And that question is it's in the text. They raise it. Where is the one born king of the Jews? How did they know to look for somebody so specific? They identify him as a king of the Jews that maybe is evidence that they really did come from Persia or modern day Iraq. You know, because if you know your Bible history, if you go back about five, 600 years, you're gonna see that the, the Israelites were hauled off into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. And where does he take them? He takes them to Babylon. And that is where we meet the famous people in the Bible like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel could do amazing things. And there have some, and again, speculation here, there are some who have argued maybe, just maybe, Daniel 
was a magi, or considered as one anyway. Maybe perhaps one of the most famous magi, interpreter of dreams, understanding things that nobody else could figure out. His counsel was sought by numerous kings, and maybe the legend, the information, the reputation, maybe that followed Daniel for generations. And not all the Jews came back to Israel when the exile was over. There was still a pretty good Jewish remnant there in Babylon or Persia. So is it a far stretch for us to think that maybe even several hundred years later, there is understanding, there is a general sense, there was an expectation maybe by a remnant of Jews in Persia and maybe the influence of Daniel has, I, I don't know, but it makes you wonder. Something, somewhere, God used somebody to connect a dot through generations and here they came. Is it all that different? than anybody else who wasn't a Jewish person at the time that also had questions about the Lord and Jesus, like the Ethiopian eunuch. I had questions about the Lord. I'm reading, I'm curious. How about the Roman centurion? What is this? They're just truth seekers. And somehow the Lord connected a dot for them. But even that, you think about it, they weren't the only ones. I mean, I mean there was a general understanding that a savior was coming. Now, if you look at verse three, here's what happens next. When King Herod heard this, what did he hear? What the Magi said, where's the king of the Jews? When they heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So they come to Herod. That makes sense. He is the current king. They might have even had letters from their leaders expressing they're coming on official business. We don't know. But they were given access to King Herod, and King Herod did not like their question. He didn't like anything about this conversation whatsoever. And so he wants more information than what these magi are giving him. So Herod calls in all of his counselors, which the Bible tells us were the chief priests and the teachers of the law. These are the guys that studied God's word day in, day out. They made their living from God's word. They're the teachers of the people. If anybody would know what this, these guys are talking about, this king of the Jews, the savior, Messiah, all this language, it's these guys, and they quickly point to, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, they quickly point to Micah. They probably didn't have to look it up. They didn't have to roll out a scroll because they knew it. Well, if they're talking savior talk, that's Bethlehem. So there was an expectation. They knew it. The people we saw in John chapter seven is a general understanding. The savior would come from Bethlehem. Herod didn't know it, but it seems like everybody else seemed to know something about it. What I'm trying to communicate to you today is that the Savior being born in Bethlehem and what it was revealed to Herod is not some mystery. It's not some big revelation. It just was to Herod, not really to anybody else. So as Herod, King Herod is starting to put the pieces together, he's starting to ask other questions. He wants to know what's going on and he's quickly devising a scheme because this is not good news of great joy to Herod, all right? Look at verse seven. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now, hopefully you know this. If not, I'm happy to tell you, Herod is one of the great scoundrels of the Bible, all right? He's up there at the tops of the list of the most evil um, guys in the Bible you're ever gonna read about. 
So all Herod is doing is he's putting together a timeline. You left when? You saw what? How long? Clickety, clickety, click. Okay, that would be this. When you find him, let me know. Because I want to worship too. And I hope all you see here in the text is scheming, equations, timelines, figuring out because Herod has much other plans than worship. Look at verse nine. After they, had heard, after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So this is coming to the end of a very long journey. They've been traveling for months on end and this had to been, it says it is, a very joyful moment for them. We get this little piece of information that this star that they first saw appeared again, and it seems like this is the first time they've seen it since that first day that started them on this whole journey. Only this time it's moving, which makes me think this is a special thing, a miraculous thing that God is doing, and it guides them like a GPS tracker on your maps and uh, your iPhone, and it takes them right to the location, boom. And there it is. Imagine arriving on that night and knowing that everything that you wondered about for months, everything you thought, your research, your questioning, your step of faith has come to this conclusion and you were right. That's them. We knew it. You know, one of them had to have been like as he gets off his donkey and probably forgets to tie it up outside and it wanders off and goes, I just knew it. No one believed me. No one, except you three because there's three, and, and you three, you came with, I, I, I don't know if, if overjoyed is the word that adequately expresses what they must have been feeling when they get there. Now, uh, we don't know how long it took them to get there. Most Bible scholars say that Jesus was somewhere between six months of age and two years of age. They weren't there at the manger, um, and, and, and the reason they say that is because they try to estimate how long, like if, if somebody would have made the connection in Persia and left, and started traveling at the same day as the angels announced it, it's probably six months to get there, but probably closer to two years because Herod sets an order out to kill all the boys who are what? Two years of age and under. So somewhere six months to two years, we really don't know. But it says in verse 11, on coming to the house, you know, there's little details I need to point out to you. They didn't come to the stable or the cave where Jesus was born. They're in a house now. This, so a residence has been established. And they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's in this moment right here that these wise men prove exactly how wise they actually were. Because this is no palace what did they think they were gonna find when they set out from Persia to meet the next king of the Jews? This is no palace. This is no home fit for the king. This is an ordinary poor man's house, most likely. There's no attendance. There's no bellhop. There's no valet service when they pull up. No one's there to take their camel and say, I'll watch this while you go inside, sir. <laughs> None of that. All they see is a young one and his mother who, probably just a peasant, and they fall down and worship. 
these are not poor men who showed up at their door that day and they did not bring poor man's gifts. They brought gifts for a king. But I'm telling you, these wise men truly were wise because they, more than anybody else in that moment, seemed to understand the real treasure that this child was. Did they connect all the dots like we have now? The New Testament is written? Probably not, but they understood this is from God, treasure. I step back and I, as I often do when I study scriptures and I take a couple steps backwards and, and I just try to reflect on this encounter, this moment, what it must have been like. I, I've told you this before, I try to visualize if I was Herod, if I was one of the magi, if I was one of the teachers of the law, what would have been my response? And then I look back and I reflect on this, I'm kind of shocked by such the wide variety of different responses to this news that the Savior had been born. I'll start with the chief priests and the teachers of the law. After, after Herod encountered the magi, and Herod brought them in to ask, what are these guys talking about? They quickly shared, oh yeah, prophecy says that the Messiah is gonna be in Bethlehem. Like I said, I didn't think they have to roll out their scrolls to figure that out. I think they just knew it. What really blows me away, quite frankly, is that these teachers of the law, these chief priests, if there was any group of people on earth that should have been more excited and more prepared and more ready and more informed about the coming of the Messiah, it's these guys. Oh yeah, you talking Messiah talk? Bethlehem, we've been waiting for this day for a long time. These are guys that should have been the most excited. A lot more than a group of truth seekers from Persia, but and again, I'm, all I have is the text, but we have no record that they went to investigate. Um, they, they heard, hey, we're here to meet the Savior of the world, the Messiah, and, and they don't search him out. They don't say, let's go together. Let's figure this out. This is exciting. If what you're saying is true, this is the day we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. Let's go. Nothing of that. You know what they say? It's probably over there somewhere. I can think of many things that are far less meaningful than the birth of the long-awaited Savior that would garner a greater reaction than this. But these chiefs, priests, these teachers of the law, I, I, as I look at them, and again, I, I'm admitting, I'm kind of reading into this a little bit. The Bible doesn't say all these things. But the impression that I get is that they were really happy, they were able to give Herod a biblical answer. Really happy, I, I gave you the answer. Head over to Bethlehem. Herod, you want to know about the Messiah? Bethlehem, whoo, we are good guys. We, we know the Bible. From what I gather from these religious leaders of the day, it seems like they were uh, mostly excited about the fact that they could search scripture, they knew scripture, they studied it, and they could give the correct answer about it, but they really didn't seem to care about the Messiah himself, the one whom they were supposed to know so much about. And friends, I think that's the greatest tragedy in the entire story. I know so much about him, but I don't care to know him. And I think there is, a, there, is an, there is an application here to today's culture. We know a lot about Jesus, but do you really know him? I'm a firm believer, and I hope you know this, that I think every one of us who's a follower of the Lord should study his word. 
And I believe that the more knowledge you have, the more familiar you are with God's word, the more enriched your walk with Jesus will be. But don't make the mistake that the chief priests and the elders seem to make on that day that where they put knowing about God above knowing God. They put knowing about him above actually knowing him. And I say that because their actions seem to tell that reality about them. You know, Jesus, you know what he didn't say? He didn't say, I know my sheep and my sheep know about me. John chapter 10, verse 14, he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So friends, the Bibles that I ask you to open to every time we gather for this time, that is God revealing him to you through his word. And the whole point of it is to draw you into him to draw you closer to him, to be more like him in his character and his attributes, namely the top of the list, his love. Paul taught the church some of these things. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter eight, he was talking about food sacrifice to idols, but what he says in verse one is very telling. He says, we all possess knowledge. We all do. Every one of us in this room possess some kind of knowledge. But then he says to the church, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. There's a difference between what you know and what you believe. There's a difference between what you say you know and the academic side of our faith versus do you love the Lord? There's there's two different things. He says in verse two, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. This is a group of guys we're reading about, these teachers of the law. They knew a lot about God, but they didn't know God. And friends, I can't think of anything worse for anybody today than to know about him and not know him. It would be a bad thing. The real treasure of Christmas is Jesus But the real treasure is not just knowing the Christmas story and the real treasure is not having a bunch of traditions and the real treasure is not many of the things that we make out this season to be. The real treasure is having a relationship with our heavenly father. That's the real treasure. So I'm encouraging you, church, don't let familiarity with this season, with this story, with these traditions, steal the real treasure from your heart, which is a relationship with the Lord. So when I think about these leaders of the day, this one thought hits me very strong. They should have known better. That's it. These guys that Herod brought in, they should have known better. They should have. And I hope and pray that no one ever says that about us. How about King Herod's response? His response is not as shocking as the others, but upon hearing about the birth of Messiah, the Bible says he was disturbed. I'm gonna throw in a couple other things that go with being disturbed. Probably paranoid and power hungry. We already know that about him anyway. Do you realize um, that Herod, I told you he was a bad dude. He killed two of his own children because he thought that they were threatening his reign. He's a bad person. Don't ever feel sorry for Herod or whatever happens to him or his family, other than the fact he doesn't know the Lord. You feel sorry for him for that. But Herod's response to Christmas was like, what do I need to do to self-preserve? That's his default. Not about what this is really about, but what do I gotta do to keep the status quo? Um, His response is the exact opposite of the Magi. You know, he treats Christmas, and I'll just say he treats Jesus in the same way that he responds to anything that he views as a threat of power, and he eliminates it to get the upper hand. Um, I would never accuse anybody of acting like Herod, you know? 
Um, I, don't, I don't know what anybody would have to do to fall into that category. But I can tell you that there is some behavior that seems to want to rise up out of us during the holidays. There's some behavior that I really think we need to guard against, and it's not unlike some of the motivation that even Herod had. You know, and one of those things that I think we need to guard ourselves is, is this truth right here, especially during the holidays, when we want things to go just right. Be very careful not to put yourself out of there in front of everybody else. That's a hard thing to do sometimes. I think it's something we should be very mindful of this Christmas. Be careful that, that we don't make our personal agendas, our traditions, what we want to see happen. Make sure that we keep all that in check and not put that out in front of the worship of our Heavenly Father, which sometimes these things can get out of balance. It's that part of us that um, elevates our expectations above people's feelings and above other people. It's like this, this thing that demands that we get our way, regardless of what God may be doing. So I would say that Herod made this mistake, and this is what we need to guard ourselves over, the mistake of me over Jesus mentality. The me over Jesus mentality. Um, Herod was so concerned with keeping control that he missed the greatest blessing in history, and he fought against it. And I wonder, if we're not careful, we might miss a huge blessing this season as well. The chief priest and the teacher of the law, King Herod, they all missed it. Only the Magi responded to the Messiah correctly. When they saw the child with his mother, what did they do? They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know nothing else about the Magi, but in light of everything that the Lord did, they are the only ones who responded in a way that makes any sense at all. They realized the moment and they worshiped. And friends, I'm gonna challenge you this Christmas season, don't miss the moment. What is this all about? It's not about all the other things that the world seems to wanna to put right in front of you. Don't miss the moment, don't miss what's happening right now. Jesus is the treasure of this season. He is the treasure of every season and every moment of our lives. So how are you responding to that? Well, I hope it's not like King Herod. Me, I want what I want. And I hope it's not like the chief priest and the, the elders, the teacher of the law, where it's like, oh, we know a lot about him, but we don't really know him. I don't know how to respond. I just know a lot about this season. I hope it's like the Magi who were very wise and they saw the treasure of Jesus and they bowed down and they worshiped humble and they brought their gifts. What are you bringing to the Lord this year? What do you have to offer? Hopefully it begins with all of me, Lord. What do you bring? What is your, this, I'm telling you, this season is about worship, the true treasure of Christmas, which is Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just thank you so much as always for your word how it teaches and guides and shapes and shows us what you want, Lord. Lord, just now as we pray these things, I pray that we, we have a response that's much like the Magi. That Lord, regardless of where we come from or how much we think we know or any of the things that are happening in our world today, all we wanna do is worship you, Lord. 
we just bow down and our gift is our life. Lord, all of us for all of you. Lord, I pray that you just receive our worship as a sweet aroma up to you in heaven. That, Lord, you would inhabit the praises of your people, that you would stay and you would dwell and you would hang out with us and you would soak it up. But, Lord, I just pray there's not a moment that goes by that we are unlike the Magi, that we have come to see the King. We want to know him and we want to worship him. And, Lord, if there's anybody in this room today that doesn't know you, I pray right now, Lord, that you're Holy Spirit, just reach right into their heart and mind and say, I love you, I died for you, and I want you to walk with me, and I want to be in heaven with you for all eternity. And the choice is yours, but the invitation is there. The good news and the invitation are at hand. Will you receive it? Lord, this is our prayer. We give you thanks for dying on the cross for our sins and raising to life three days later. And Lord, we wait in great expectation for that day when we will see you again. And Lord, we pray that you speed its coming. In Jesus' name.